Welcome to this episode of Revolution in Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And on this episode, we are discussing the work of Ernest Renan, What is a Nation? We've been doing kind of, I guess, on and off a series on nationalism, sort of. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a really long time, we have episodes on like nationalism after the French Revolution. And we've just recently done like uh, the invention of tradition by Hobsbawm, which is a little bit touches on nationalism. The invention of American tradition by M.J. Bowden, which definitely touches on nationalism and related to Hobsbawm's work. We did Imagined Communities by uh, Benedict Anderson, yes. which actually is highly influenced by the work today that we're going to discuss. Um, so we've kind of gone out of chronological order, but like whatever, it is what it is. Um, we use this, I think we both use this probably in a various classes. I definitely use it in my class called State and Society. I think you use it in some of your history courses as well. Um, I mean, it really is a, it's only like 11 pages and it was a talk that he delivered in 1882, mm -hmm. but it really, really is hugely influential in the work of history and all kinds of other disciplines like political science and so forth, because what he said, because it was the time he was saying it was really, really groundbreaking. Um, well, he's, he's I mean, it, just to contextualize just a little bit, like this is only a decade after the third French Republic had been established after another bout with uh, more or less monarchy under Napoleon III. And there was a lot of trouble with the Franco-Prussian War, which is obviously what ushered in the political change for France. Regardless, there was a lot of discussion during this period of time on what what France is and the ideas of sovereignty again and the resurrection of of who constitutes um, being French, right? Because there's also all of these colonial possessions that they're dealing with, French Indochina and French Madagascar and so on and so forth. So this was kind of like bringing that argument back because as we've discussed in other episodes, nationalism as we know it now is, is mostly a product of the French revolutionary era from the first stage, right? Going all the way back to, to 1789. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like a resurrection of that conversation that at this point now is about a century old in France. So yeah, I was going to say in the lineage of this, like, you know, his title is, you know, what is a nation? That's a really important question. Mm -hmm. And it harkens back all the way to the French revolution, right? And the philosophical and political question, what is the third estate? Yep. Right. That really defined that entire era. You know, like Jared said, this is sort of a rebirth a century later of this question in more of a modern milieu, you know, as modern as it was in the late 1800s, dealing with colonialism, dealing with, you know, the Third Republic at this point, dealing with all these changes that were going on. I mean, globally and specifically in mm -hmm. France, it was important to answer this question, what is a nation? And so that's what Renan sets out to do uh, in this talk that then becomes a pamphlet. So the first thing he does, we're going to start with his, the first half, essentially, is him saying what a nation is not. Um, so he starts out by saying, you know, I'm going to answer this question, what is a nation? But the first thing I'm going to do is say what it isn't. And he's really attacking um, other scholars at the time that were had ideas about what nationalism was, what nationhood meant. Um, as an example, the German philosopher Fichte uh, wrote a lot about nationalism and race. And so he was saying that like race is what determines a nation very objectively. And Renault is specifically uh, attacking him. We actually have a, an episode on Fichte, though not at all talking about his ideas for nationalism, talking about his uh, idealism and version of that. But anyways, so that's what the first half of this. So we're going to break down uh, basically all of the reasons uh, all the things that Renan says uh, nation is not. And the first one is 
uh, race. So, so before we get into that real quick, there's yep. an interesting assertion in the historiography that he kind of tries to lay out mm-hmm. regarding the origins of, of nations, which actually flies in the face of some of the other theorists that we've talked about regarding this. Yep. There's an interesting point here that he makes. It was the Germanic invasions which introduced in the world the principle that later on would come to serve as the basis for the existence of nationalities. Essentially, what he's arguing in this case is is he can trace, at least in his own mind, trace some of the idea of national consciousness all the way back to the collapse of the Roman Empire itself, or at least the western part of the Roman Empire, and the invasions of various uh, 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 Germanic peoples, Visigoths and Ostrogoths and and, and Franks. Um, um, to be sure, right off the bat, I'm I'm kind of immediately critical of that, but but I don't know that we have time to really like dig into why I might be critical of that. I, I think we need to look maybe more at the Imagine Communities episode that we talked about. For those of you that are curious, why we we might be critical of that. Um, Although I think he's only to his credit, he's saying like it harkens back to like that's sort of the beginnings of what led to the circumstances that would give birth to nations. But he admits that it's a very, very recent phenomenon that, you know, yeah. neither, he specifically says neither, you know, Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, and he talks about Charlemagne specifically, et cetera. Neither, none of those were nations. It was the, when they began to fell that that was the very beginnings of the social circumstances that would lend itself to the development of nations, but that those didn't lead to nations, I guess. Right. No, one of the great comments that he makes regarding to the construction of nations is the violence in which they're born. He yeah. says, forgetting, I would even say historical error is an essential factor in the creation of a nation. And it is for this reason that the progress of historical studies often poses threat to nationality. Historical inquiry, in effect, throws light on the violent acts that have taken place at the origin of every political formation, even those that have been the most benevolent in their consequences. Unity is always brutally established. Yep, I have that last part underlined, right? Unity is always brutally established. I mean, the main reason this was so controversial at the time and is still so influential to this day is that so many people talk about nationalism in the context of it's just natural. It's inevitable. It's the natural evolution of human interaction that we were always headed towards nations and that they have always existed in some fashion or another, right? His argument is that that's absolute nonsense, that nations are relatively recent in human history and that it's not just a natural thing that just happens, that they are in his, you know, unity is always brutally established, that they are violently creative, uh, oftentimes, uh, if not always, in the face of opposition, that it's not just some natural thing that just, you know, happens. Yeah, these things born in blood and violence cannot be a natural consequence, which right. brings us back to the Imagined Communities episode with Benedict Anderson and arguing that one of the things that the nations use is this idea of their natural ascendance, naturalization of citizens mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. It's, it's always born in conflict, so thus making them unnatural. All right, yep. so what is a nation not? So a nation is not a collection of people that share a race, uh, is his first um, argument. He says, for various reasons, that's much too simplistic of a statement that historically it's just not possible that there's no examples of any modern nation that has been born because everyone in a geographical area uh, shared the same race. That just isn't a thing. Um, do you have anything specific you wanted to touch on there? Like the uh, any quotes you liked? 
Yes, there's two that I want to I want to discuss real fast. According to this theory, the idea in the theory in question is that nations are born from race. According to this theory, the Germanic family, for example, has the right to reclaim its scattered members, even if these members do not ask to rejoin it. The right of Germanism to such and such uh, a province is stronger than that of the province, province's inhabitants. In this manner, one has created a sort of primordial right analog uh, analogous to the divine right of kings. For the principle of nations, one substitutes that of ethnography. That is a great error. One which, should it become dominant, will result in the destruction of European civilization. I like that for two reasons. It challenges the notion of race, and yet in 1882, it's very prescient, mm -hmm. using the German example of this idea of, of forceful... Uh, conglomeration of Germanness, which it, he's right. It led to back-to-back -back near destruction of European civilization in the 20th yeah. century. So that's why I really like that quote. Um, yeah, he's like, yeah, what he's is for, Adonis, yeah, but, 30 years ahead of his time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he then goes on to say much later on in this section that the truth of the matter is that there are no pure races, which means race cannot be a component in- Yeah, I had that uh, highlighted too. Nationalism. So he says, the truth of the matter is that there are no pure races, Making politics depend on ethnographic analysis is to have it repose on a chimera. And then a little bit later on in the next paragraph, he says, discussions of the idea of race are interminable because the word race is taken by historical philologists and physical anthropologists in two entirely different senses. And then he continues. I mean, just making this claim, which we now know to be true with modern you know, science and DNA analysis, just making the claim that there's no such thing biologically as race, there is no such thing as a pure race in 1882, wildly ahead of his time and clearly controversial back then, right? I mean, it's even controversial to say that now, even though it's been proven without a doubt with the modern science that we have uh, capable now. To complete you know. his challenge to race, here's another fire uh, quote. Race is not everything as it is amongst rodents and felines, and no one has the right to go about the world examining men's heads and then grabbing them by the throat saying, you are of our blood, you belong to us. That was a direct shot fired at, obviously, the previous century's, um, quote unquote, and I'm using this liberally, scientists that would mm -hmm. make these very, very um, arbitrary observations to distinguish individuals, thus constructing the idea of race, not unlike- Well, not only that, but also Carl slavery, Mayes or David right? Hume, people that we've picked on before in other episodes yep. regarding that, the, the construction of scientific racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he says, going back to like ethnography and this idea of, you know, studying race from that angle, he says, the, oh, now I have to find it. I very much like ethnography. It is an unusually interesting science. However, as I wish to live free, I desire that it have no political application, which I thought was interesting, right? That this idea of, you know, the studying of races and then applying political, you know, institutions based on that uh, has no place in the world, he's essentially saying, and that, that that's not how nations are formed at all. So a nation is not racial. What's yep. the next thing? Next, he says, what we have said of race must also be said, uh, said of language. And I just have the first quote of this section. It's the first sentence. He says, languages asked to be united. They do not force it. The United States and England, like Spanish, America, and Spain, speak the same languages, but do not constitute a single nation. So just that first sentence, he says that can't be possible that those that share a language are what constitute a nation, because just taking as the example, England and the United States, clearly they share a language, but are not the same nation. So like that, that just hasn't happened throughout history, um, which if you listen to our episode by, um, was it Anderson or Bowden? I think it was Anderson that talks Anderson, about language extensively. Yeah. 
Anderson. Yeah, so he actually one. does think that uh, language is an important part in the formation of nations over time and the way that they change and evolve over time and become less diverse over time is a key for him mm-hmm. when it comes to the origins of nations. He says, we must not abandon this fundamental principle that man is a reasonable and moral being before he is penned up in this or that language, a member of this or that race, or a participant in this or that culture. And that's kind of like his closing thought on why language does not necessarily qualify as part of the construction of nations. Mm -hmm. Okay, next section, he says, religion. Religion no longer offers a sufficient basis for the establishment of a modern nationality. He says, quote, at its origin, religion valued the very existence of the social group. The social group was an extension of the family, and the rights of religion were the rights of the family. This religion was, in the full sense of the term, a state religion. It was not Athenian if one refused to, one was not Athenian if one refused to practice it. At its basis, it was the cult of the Acropolis personified. But he says that doesn't mean that it's the same as a nation. And he says, quote, there are no longer masses of people believing in a uniform manner. After his manner, each believes and practices as he can and as he likes. There are no there is no longer any religion of the state. One can be French, English or German while being a Catholic, Protestant, a Jew or someone who practices no religion. Religion has become something individual and concerns the conscience of each. And he continues on with further examples. But he says that just the way that human beings have evolved, not biologically, but socially and politically and geographically where they live, no longer does everyone believing in one singular religion live in one singular place and no longer do all of the people living in one geographic location share the same religion. That that just doesn't exist anymore if it ever did, which we know that that would be an oversimplification if we were to make that claim that it ever did in a large uh, space geographical area. So he says, we can't just say, well, a nation, the origins of a nation came out of religion. Very clearly, that's not true. And he explains that well. I don't even think we need to, you know, really believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a very post-enlightenment liberalist idea. Um, He says, Mm -hmm. after this manner, each believes and practices as he can, as he likes. There is no longer any religion of state. One can be French, English, or German, while being a Catholic, a Protestant, a Jew, or someone who practices no religion. However, my one caveat to this, to be clear, is that um, we would argue vehemently that nationalism itself becomes religious in nature. Yes, and it actually, it, if if the traditional, especially in the Abrahamic faiths, if the traditional Abrahamic faiths are not um, contributors to what a nation is, we can argue that the nation itself seeks to replace them in mm-hmm. terms of the ascendance in the construction of identities and social collective. Excellent point. Yeah, the idea of civic behavior. Right. Yes, ritualization of behavior, um, control over, of course, people's actions, i.e. the body, if we want to use Foucault in here. Mm -hmm. Yes, these are all things that religions had used prior to this, and nationalism takes those cues. Okay. Yep. Which uh, Benedict Anderson actually, I think, does a really good job of talking about that as well. Uh, Not specifically like civic religion, but the ritualization of behavior, the commonalities I think that nationalism has with religion, patriotism, etc. Yep. Okay, next, he says, community of interest is assuredly a powerful link between men. But they, well, I'll just let him speak for himself. Quote, do interests suffice to make a nation? I do not think so. Communities of interest determine commercial treaties. However, sentiment features in the making of nations. A nation is a body and a soul at the same time. So he says, sharing interest is very clearly important, but it's not enough to make a nation. He says, yes, It's important economically, but 
have sharing interests with others, but it's not enough. That's not the sole characteristic of a nationality, right? I mean, this is just he literally the like two sentences in this section. Do you have any more to add on that? No, I mean, because he gets on his argument is that it is an important part, but not not solely. It's not sufficient to explain national right. Material interests can be international, right? Community like yeah. multiple people can have interests in similar products or extraction processes or things along those lines. It's never unique to a specific nation. Mm-hmm. Well, especially now that we know. Yeah. I mean, this isn't exactly the time, but now that we have things like, you know, NAFTA and et cetera, we see how multiple nations can enter into agreements with common interests, et cetera, right? Uh, for the nation, I guess, not probably for the individual people, but you get the idea. Then he goes on and he talks about geography. He says, geography and what are called natural frontiers certainly play a considerable part in the division of nations. He says, quote, geography is one of the essential factors in history. Rivers had distributed the races. Mountains have stopped them. The former encourages, whereas the latter discourages the great historical movements. But one can say, as certain parties believe, that the limits of a nation are inscribed on the map and that a given nation has the right to judge what is necessary in routing its corner or in striving to reach this mountain or that river. I know of no more arbitrary or disastrous doctrine. With it, one justifies every kind of violence. So he's basically saying, yes, there are times when this happens where like the border of a nation is a river, but he said geography isn't the origin of nations or nationalism. That those are different, very different things. Yeah, I mean, I would agree wholeheartedly. Like, like there were geographic things that somewhat separated people over historical timelines, right? The Himalaya Mountains kept Indian culture slightly, not even slightly, pretty different from like Chinese culture because mm-hmm. there's a giant mountain range there. Or for a long period of time, if we want to use a European example, the Danube River separated, of course, what, of course, what was the Western Roman Empire and what they would have called the barbarians, but a whole host of um, uh, Germanic-speaking peoples. Um, and that was a border that just existed. But I must stress what he's alluding to here is this idea of, or at least this is what I pick up on, drawing lines arbitrarily all over maps and saying, this is ours, that's theirs. Um, and to maintain control over those is also a violent, um, that's a violent discourse as well. 100%. Yep. And, we, and there's no better example than what takes place on the southern border of the United States right now, of course. That mm-hmm. is there, extreme violence, extreme violence and oppression that takes place to maintain the integrity of, again, what is just rather a rather arbitrary line drawn on a map. Yes, there's the Rio Grande River there, but we already know there was a series of wars and treaties that took place to make that the, the go-to border. We have episodes on that, right? But it is one, just like the nation itself, that is, or it is a purview that is born in blood. Mm-hmm. So. so then he concludes this section. He says, we now see what does not suffice to create such a spiritual principle. Race, language, interests, religious affinity, geography, military necessities. What more could there be? Given what has already been said, I will not need to hold your attention much longer. And he goes to his next session. He says that a nation is a soul, a spiritual principle. Two things which, properly speaking, are really one and the same can constitute this soul, the spiritual principle. One is the past, the other is the present. One is the possession in common of a rich legacy of memories, the other is present consent, the desire to live together, the desire to continue to invest in the heritage that we have jointly received. The nation, like the individual, is the outcome of a long past of efforts, sacrifices, and devotions. He continues that paragraph, but he says it's basically the past and the present. It is a shared history, and like we have many episodes on, oftentimes that's manufactured. 
and it is a shared consent to continue forward. And if either of those things didn't exist and we couldn't call, we wouldn't expect a nation to either come into being or continue its existence, I think, right? So the nation is imagined, and that's where, of course, probably Benedict Anderson gets the title of, of course, his great work to imagine communities. But in completely. our purview, it's completely mythological. It's a mythological mm-hmm. construct uh, sewn together, of course, based on the ideas of storytelling and storytelling that is oftentimes not necessarily true. That's why we call it mythological. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to bind people together. Oftentimes it can have some positive purposes like unification, um, but every time it's also born in blood and it can also lead to othering and oppression and so many of the other negative things that we've seen takes place um, because of nationalism. Some of the, the, the 20th and 21st centuries um, most horrific crimes against humanity and the planet. Um, are all done under nationalist discourse because it is, as we alluded to earlier, it might not have come from the great world religions, but it is religious by nature. Yep. I have another quote here. He says, a nation is therefore a great solidarity constituted by the feeling of sacrifices made and those that one is still disposed to make, right? And then he, right below that in the next sentence, he talks about consent, right? The clearly expressed desire to continue a common life. A nation's existence please ex- is, please excuse the metaphor, a daily plebiscite, just as an individual's existence is a perpetual affirmation of life, blah, blah, blah. So like Jared said, the nation is an invented idea, right? It's this, this mythological thing that human beings have invented through their shared past and their intent and consent with one another to share a future. And the reason this is so controversial at the time, like we spoke about briefly in the very beginning, is most of the people at the time were arguing that there was object objectivity to nations, right? That certain races are members of certain nations and that religion gave birth to nationalism and you could, you know, et cetera, like Renan goes through all of the examples. He's saying, no, none of these are true. The nation is A, very, very recent and B, it's completely made up. It's invented, you know, and then we see how this now inspires historians that come after like Hobsbawm, who writes an edited volume, The Invention of Tradition, and talks specifically about how that shared past is often manufactured. It's not factual at all. It's invented to make citizens believe that their nation has been around essentially since time immemorial, right? And that there will be a future that they share together. And then we see Benedict Anderson and his imagined communities, same exact thing, that we nations exist in our imagination. They aren't real, tangible things. They're not a natural event that just is bound to happen through the natural you know, evolution of politics. All of that is nonsense that we imagine these things. Nations only exist in our minds, essentially. And then we see uh, even M.J. Bowden, which we did the episode on, that is directly going in the lineage of um, Hobsbawm and the invention of tradition, saying that geography, actually, he's a geographer, interestingly, it does play a role, but it actually plays a very significant role in the invention of the shared mythology. And that that is the key that geography plays. This idea of, like we talked about in the episode, right, the untamed frontier, et cetera, which is completely made up. That wasn't true at all. And Bowden goes through extensive examples in his work. But we see why this work at the time and to this day was controversial at the time and continues to be so influential 
to this day, he's really one of the first that suggests that the nations only exist in our mind. There's nothing real or inevitable about them. They're recent and invented. It's just an idea that is made up. Post-Enlightenment era uh, manufacture of nations uh, has created a lot of cults. 100%. Yeah, not to mention, like we talked about the uh, civic religion, right? Substituting all of these ideas that go along with religious belief, substituting the nation itself in that same framework and just continuing on with our lives, right? Anything to add? Nope. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app. That will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.